Hi everybody, I'm Phil Town. I'm Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about money. Money, Mindful. mindfulness, how to think about your money, what on earth to do with your money. Yeah, and how to invest the way the best investors in the world do it. And we're going to dive in on that today in a fourth or fifth or wherever, wherever many we are in a series. <laughs> we're very far in. We're in. We're in there <laughs> deep with Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's uh, partner at Berkshire Hathaway for many, many years and, uh, and considered one of the better investors in the history of investing. Charlie has a track record of about 20 plus percent now for, I don't know, 60 years. He's 90 some years old. And a couple years ago, he was giving a lecture, or, or rather answering questions for the BBC. And we came on this short one minute quote. I mean, it's crazy how quickly he goes through them. Yeah. And we've now been talking about it for hours. And the them he's going through. <laughs> right, sorry, the them that he's going through are these principles of investing, I think he calls them. And there are four of them. We've talked about the first three. So we're going to today talk about the fourth, which is all about the price yep. of so a company. Basically, what, I, what I'm thinking that Charlie's doing is he's breaking it down into two chunks, really. That The first one has three principles, and that is that if you want to understand uh, if, if you want to buy a wonderful business and you want to buy it on sale, the first three principles are understand the business, be capable of understanding it. The second one is to be sure it's got a big, durable, competitive advantage. And the third is have good people running it. And then you can look at the value of the business. Are you saying those three are kind of like the prerequisites? Yes. And then you figure out the price? Yes. I don't think you can figure out the price without the first three, or at least the first two. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I often think, why am I going to waste my, it feels like a waste of time in some way to do all the research into the company and into the management and into how their business is structured if they're not at a good price right now, if I'm not going to buy them right now anyway. It's like, why don't I flip these and do the price question first? Well, that's a, and a lot of people try to do that, right? They always are looking at price and try to see something that's on sale. But we've got to be capable of understanding the business well enough to know what that future cash flow is going to be all about. And that's what we're going to talk about today, I think, okay. if we get to it. Okay. We may have to talk a little bit about some of the, the differences in, in academic theory versus actual real-world reality um, when it comes to the values of companies. So let, let's dive well, in. Let's start with Charlie. Okay. And uh, maybe after we hear Charlie, can we just talk about the fluidity maybe between those, between the research part, the sort of less numbery part? The fluidity? And the, well, I, I'm thinking about it like, okay, well, maybe you do a little bit of both. Like maybe it's most efficient to look at price, get a list of companies that have a decent price right now and then say, okay, which ones are the ones that have the best management, have the best moat that I understand, then yeah, come yeah. back, okay, maybe delve further into the price once you understand the company better, narrow that list down some more. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's really frustrating to be digging away at companies for you know a long time, and then they're not on sale, and they don't go on sale, and you can never buy them on sale. Yeah, it feels like you wasted your time. But then, of course, you go over and just try to find companies that are on sale, and you don't know enough about them. You don't really know on sale. So is there some fluidity there where you're kind of going back and forth between the... Kind of, but not... not, I wouldn't say so much that. I would say I'm going to teach you a really cool thing, 
on how to take that <laughs> shortcut. All right, all right. But not now, later. Oh. Because <laughs> I don't want to get into that yet. I know this really good shortcut that helps all of us figure out how to get onto good companies that are on sale. Because we don't want to waste our time looking for companies that aren't, really. It's kind of how it goes down. Right. But we'll come back. We'll come back to that. So, I mean, this is the constant question about um, doing your own investing is like, where do I find the time and how do I maximize my limited amount of time? Thank God we have answers to these things. Good. Okay. It's really good to do. I'm, I'm glad really there's an answer. Yeah. And, and, um, and thank goodness for Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. I mean, Charlie right now is going to tell us the four things that are really the secret to investing and the style of investing that has produced the greatest results over the last 80 or 90 years. So here's Charlie Munger. You ready? All right. So here's Charlie. It's a minute long. He's going to go through the four principles for picking a company. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage and then of course we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent and finally no matter how wonderful it is it's not worth an infinite price so we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life that's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's all so obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? All right. It's, uh, so if you're listening, it's all so obvious. And simple. Yeah. Also thanks, obvious and thanks, simple. Charlie. And it is it is it is when you're when you're sitting on the other side of it and you've worked with this for a while and and it is it becomes really pretty obvious and simple. Um, but it isn't to most of the world. That's kind of the problem. It's not obvious to me at all. And uh, I got to tell you the, the the least obvious part of it to the rest of the world, particularly the academic world. Um, that teaches your fund managers how to invest is the part about we can't pay an infinite price. Um, we have to have a fair price or whatever Charlie said. What do you say? Fair price? He said it's something? not worth an infinite price. The price has to make sense yeah. and give a margin of safety given the natural vicissitudes of life. Exactly. I love that phrase. I'm going to start using that in my normal everyday life. I love it too, and, and what I really love about it is he's saying something that is absolutely radical, and it just slides by so gently, you know? It's like, say it again, what does he say exactly? The vicissitudes? Right before that. He says that the price has to make sense. Price has to make sense. Yeah. Which means... That there has a, to be a margin of safety. There has to be a margin of safety given... Given the, the natural vicissitudes the of natural life. ups and downs. Exactly. The ins and outs of life. Okay, so and what I love about that is that he says it's just automatic that those vicissitudes are going to come. And I think so often we're trying to ward against any of those ups and downs. We're trying to make it so that they just won't happen. But they will. Yeah, I mean, really and you look at the market over time, and this is something I constantly think about with investing, is that there's these giant macro forces that come into the market and make it go up or down. 
and it's nothing to do with any specific company like 9-11 all the you know the entire market dipped like crazy and people didn't know if it was going to come back right the great recession we just had right i mean these are things that are happening on a macro level that really aren't you know we can do all the research we want into the given companies yeah and always on hindsight it looks so obvious oh you should have invested in 2009 right and like of course we were going to come back after 9-11 but we didn't know that right and so what really is interesting about Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, um, and I really think quite a number of investment uh, managers who manage money in this way, um, although we're the, we're the massive minority, almost all of us were buying stocks in 2009. This small group of what I would call rule one investors for Warren Buffett's rule right, number one. You're talking about after the crash. Yeah. Because the crash was 2008, right? Yeah. Okay. And so in 2009, the market bottomed. And... Uh, and you can see the track records on on the guys that we really admire, um, and you can you can you know I mean you know I went on CNBC and said I'm getting in in March 2009, and it, it it's it looked on hindsight it's the obvious thing to do, but nobody did it. You know, just a handful of investment managers did it, and there's some real reasons for that, and we're going to get into that in this podcast as we go along. Um, over the course of this podcast, we're going to talk about that a lot because it's fundamental to understanding how to protect yourself from the natural vicissitudes <laughs> of life because most of the people out there who are investing money don't think you can protect yourself from the natural vicissitudes of life. Therefore, they're advising you to do the best you can, which is to massively diversify um, your money across, you know, most people would advise indexes across multiple indexes therefore literally thousands of stocks that you would spread your money across and that's the way to protect yourself from the natural vicissitudes of life it's never made sense to me because if the whole market is going down you're going down you're going down if you're diversified you're I just don't get it well it gets I feel like I'm crazier. missing something on the diversification argument well Warren Buffett said that you know diversification is for the ignorant if you don't know anything you have to diversify because you can't tell a wonderful company you don't understand anything you don't know if it's got good management does it have a durable competitive advantage you don't know any of those things you don't know well what value isn't is. the diversification argument that there will be some sections of the market that go up when other sections go down. No. No? No. The diversification argument is that it follows on two two major theses. One is that the market will always go up in the long run. So that solves the problem of, you know, it's all going down at once. Yeah, but eventually it goes up. Uh, so that's the first argument. And the second one is that nobody can beat the market. So the only rational way to invest is to put your money in an index and just go with the market, whatever the market's doing, because eventually it always goes up. But that idea that nobody can beat the market flies right into the teeth of the fact that these kinds of investors do beat the market, and they've been beating it for decades, consistently, endlessly beating it, crushing it. If you'd put a thousand, or I think $10,000 into the stock market in like 1960, um, today it would be worth you know five hundred thousand or something, give or take. If you put ten thousand dollars with Warren Buffett in nineteen sixty, today it'd be worth about forty million. So the difference, or or Charlie Munger, or uh, Bill Ruane, or a whole number of other ruler type investors, people who follow the idea that your your main focus of investing is to not lose money, um, which is Warren Buffett's rule number one of investing: don't lose money. So 
man, alive, we've got to deal with this before we even start talking deeper into what Charlie's saying here about we can't pay an infinite price. And what, what exactly did he say? He said it's not worth an infinite price. A price has to make sense. And then it has to have a, it has to give us a margin of safety that protects against the natural vicissitudes okay. of life. Okay, a couple of things there. First, it has to make sense. So Charlie Munger, who's incredibly rational, and Warren Buffett both think that a price needs to be rational or make sense when you buy a stock. Because they, th they look at buying a stock like buying a company, same thing. If you're buying a company, it has to make sense, the price that you pay. So we need to talk about what does that mean? Yeah, it sounds like you have to understand what you're getting for that price. Yeah, because I mean, I don't know that somebody would say that about gold or diamonds or a Picasso or a real estate deal you know, land in LA or something. I don't, I don't know that they say the price has to make sense. Because how do you make sense out of those prices? How do you make sense out of a $21 million Picasso painting? Well, or, it's just a market price. It's just a market price. It's just what the last guy paid, kind yeah. of, you know? And what the next guy will and pay. And what the next guy will pay, right? But businesses aren't priced like that. Businesses aren't priced like that because they are a unique asset group that you buy with money, and what you get for it isn't the joy of owning a Picasso on your wall. What you get for it is money. <laughs> <laughs> you get... And the joy of knowing that your values are being perpetuated in the world, right? You're, you're employing people. See our earlier helping. conversations. Yeah, exactly. But that's incidental. <laughs> it's, it isn't actually for the people who are starting the business, but from a person who's investing in a business, Ultimately, you have a lot of choices that will meet your sort of esoteric requirements, right? I want to be in a business with somebody I like. I want to be in a business that's helped the employees grow in their lives and is, is giving them a fair wage in, in exchange for what they're doing and it's helping the environment and it's, you know, all these things which would be important to me in any business I own. But I can own any business I want. Right. right. So there's one more thing. And that's how much am I going to pay for this as opposed to that. And with all these other asset groups, that is not easily arrived at other than what's the market price. And what Charlie is saying when he says it has to make sense is something really profoundly different than it's whatever the market price is. He's saying, I don't care what the market price is. What I care about is does the price make sense? And what he's referring to is this very important concept about owning a business and that is that the value of the business isn't just whatever the market's paying. The value of the business is really just related to some present whatever you're, you're willing to pay today to get the cash flow that's coming off of that business for the next bunch of years. Okay, So that's a really important point we, we, which we got to come back to. But I want to go to the other point he's making. So the first real incredible point is that a business price has to make sense. And the only way it makes sense is to pay something reasonable for the amount of cash that's going to be thrown off of this business in the future. And the second thing he's making is, and because of the vicissitudes of life, we need to buy it cheaper than that. Hmm. Hmm. Cheaper than a price that makes sense. Yeah. So what Charlie is sneaking in there is we want to pay a price that makes sense, but to us, 
it's probably needs to be less than even the price that makes sense in order to have a margin of safety against the vicissitudes. A margin of safety just means that I might be wrong about what's coming down the road in the near term that's going to really bounce this business around a lot and the cash flow that I'm expecting to get in these next few years doesn't appear quite as large as what I thought it would and so I'm going to wish I paid less money than the full retail value of this business. So I want a margin of safety on that business. Now we're going to get we're going to get way into the weeds on this in these <laughs> podcasts about what do they mean by that kind of margin of safety. But right now I think it's really really important to talk about something that that is um, a fundamental paradigm of the way the stock market works. Before the, we go quite there, we're can I just take ask a you break a quick and go to our <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Yes. Um, how much of a margin of safety does Charlie use? Do you know? Well, um, yeah, roughly, because I know what these guys pay for businesses over time. Um, essentially, what these guys are trying to do is buy $10 bills and pay $5 for them. So, they're so he wants to get it for half, half of the price that makes sense. Yes. And that's what he says. That, that's... That's what, what Charlie would say would be, that would be a fair price. Okay. <laughs> a fair price. Now, to put that into context, it, it's not being bad guys. What they really want to do, Buffett and all these other guys who invest like this, what they really understand is they're just buying a business. And they don't have to buy shares of a public company. They can just go buy a private business. And they do it all the time. They own dozens and dozens of private businesses. Private businesses typically sell for about half of what a public business would sell for. So when your Uncle Steve sold his business, he sold it for about nine times the earnings of the business. But the company that bought it was selling in the public market for 18 times the, 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 the earnings of the business. And so the moment they acquired the earnings from Steve's company, they doubled the value. Hmm because those earnings were then valued at 18 times earnings. So it's a really interesting. And, and that's what Munger and Buffett and these guys want to do. They want to buy a public business at a private business price. And so we have to buy in the public market, and therefore we have to recognize that the market ha has this value of liquidity. And one more value, really important on a public market, is that the information about the company is... Um, is much more rigorously required to be much. Uh, told to mm -hmm. the, yeah now you know how deep they get into the weeds on that one so private businesses you can have skeletons in the closet maybe you can get away with it uh, public businesses you could go to jail if you don't expose the skeletons um, and for those two reasons the liquidity and the vast more information that's vastly more information that's available to you make it more valuable Hmm. And it's about two to one, roughly. So, um, but but. So moving back to the uh, the markets that you were going towards. Yeah. So this is this is the key thing, is that the implication that Charlie's telling us here is that you can buy businesses with a margin of safety. Good point. Oh. Right. Wait a second. Right. There's a little problem with that, because academic. Uh, Professors basically have come up with a theory of the markets that started back in probably before the University of Chicago, but certainly the University of Chicago back in the late 60s, early 70s, with Richard Fama, came out with this idea 
called the efficient market hypothesis, which basically says that all of the prices in a market that's very, uh, where all the information is out there and is very liquid and has thousands of people investing and trading in it, the prices in that market are efficient. That means the price of a thing is the value of the thing. So they've kind of basically taken us over to pricing businesses the way you price gold or real estate or a Picasso. It's the value of the thing is whatever people are willing to pay. That's it, plain and simple. And since everyone is rational, very, very rational at, in the stock market, all of the people who are trading most of the money in the market are graduates from Harvard and Yale and Wharton and Columbia, and, and, and they're very, very smart and brilliant people all of them the valedictorian of their class in high school, and then they became the valedictorian of their class in college, and then graduated magnum cum laude, and then they went to business school and were number one grad, and then they got into Goldman Sachs program, and they were the best guy at Goldman, and then when they're 29 years old, they get a fund. Wait, I'm sorry, are you saying they're smart? <laughs> they're really smart. They're smarter, <laughs> than, they're smarter than me. Okay, you've been to those colleges, so okay, fair enough. You're smart too, but... These guys, you know these guys. You went to college with these guys. I ask you, are they smart? Of course. Yeah, they're really smart. Okay. So the first thing we got to recognize is really smart people don't do really dumb things, theoretically. Well, that's, that's a do? large leap. Do you think? I, th I, think, I think smart people do dumb things all the time. Ah, that would be a crack in the little theory here. Not at all. They're still smart. Is that the theory? What's the theory that the we're talking about? The theory is about? they don't do dumb things. Oh, who has that theory? That's the theory of efficient market. The efficient market theory says really smart guys are all rational and don't do dumb things. That means they're not going to sell you something for less than it's worth. They're not going to sell Charlie a company with a margin of safety on the price. Because that would be stupid. If it's worth $10, how is Charlie going to be able to buy it from a smart guy for $5? Why, why would the smart guy sell it to him for $5? He's not going to do that. But you know these guys, don't you? Do you think they could make a mistake? Well, I don't know if I, I think it's a leap to say it's a mistake. Maybe really? there's different goals there. Well, why would there be a goal that would cause me to sell something today in a fully liquid market for a lot less than I don't know, but worth? I doubt, to be clear, I don't know much about efficient market theory. I doubt that it's based entirely on smart people making constantly correct decisions. Is that true? It's totally true. It, what, it's, I think it's, it's probably more about, again, have not read it. I think it's probably more about the market evening out various decisions by thousands of people and saying at some point this becomes efficient because someone is willing to purchase a stock from another person at this price and that must be efficient. That's my guess. Well, let me, let me just add one thing here, and that is that the idea that these guys would get emotional isn't allowed in this theory or in this hypothesis. In other words, emotion doesn't come into it. So what you're saying is lots of different people would find different ranges of prices, and it would all settle into a basic area fairly narrow, which is today's price, and that would be a rational price. That's, that's their basic argument, exactly. But... No part of that argument says that people get emotional and scared or greedy and make, it, and make a decision based on fear or greed rather than a value of the business. 
They're just scared. And so they're bailing or they're really greedy and they're jumping in. Well, they must have um, an explanation for that. Like what happened during the Great Depression, um, the crash in 29? What was their explanation for that? Fear. Massive fear based on... So they on use fear as an explanation, but you just said that fear is not included in the, in the theory. It isn't. In that theory, the value of those stocks was uh, on the market whole was at 400 one day in 1929, and a year later it was at 50. And that was the value. Somehow the value of American businesses went from 400 to 50 in a matter of a year. All right, and they have to make up this elaborate framework in order for that to make any sense if you don't include fear, right? Right. In other words, that somebody would, out of fear, sell something f at a far lower price than it's really worth. Okay, so you clearly think efficient market theory is crap. Total crap. So let's start at the beginning here. Maybe, okay. maybe you explain why it's crap. Okay, so here's why it's crap. Warren Buffett says it's crap. <laughs> Charlie Munger the says end. it's All crap. right, let's pack up and go home. <laughs> so my first logical thing is to appeal to authority. All right. So I'm going to anchor my argument here in what these guys have been saying for 50, 60 years. And that is that the market in the long run is efficient. It's going to get you prices that are the same as values. But in the short run, it's emotional that there's a lot of emotion that gets involved on the day-to-day -day trading or month-to-month -month trading that goes on in the market. And when a predominant emotion begins to kick in, like fear or greed, so fear in 1929, fear in 2008, greed in 1999, right? Greed in 1928. When, when there's a predominant emotion, it can overwhelm rationality. People do really dumb things under the sway of powerful group emotion. And, um, and in that environment, the market in a short run becomes what Ben Graham called a weighing machine. A weighing uh, Sorry, excuse machine? me, a voting machine. It just is, he said in the long run, it's a weighing machine. It's going to weigh each stock properly. It's going to give you the right value. But in the short run, it's a voting machine. It's an emotional thing that's just, we're all putting in our emotional vote and the value of a company can be who's the scared, most afraid person out there with the biggest portfolio can set the value of the business. Hmm. According, if price is value. You just said something interesting, which is the biggest portfolio can yeah. move the market. Oh yeah. And by the way, the market has become a place where there are a relatively small number of very, very big portfolios. Um, today, 85% of the stock market is managed by a few thousand institutional fund managers who run mutual funds and pension funds and banking funds and insurance funds. And as a group, they're holding about 85% of you know trillions and trillions of dollars. Wow. And they're, they're investing this in big, huge blocks that move the market wherever they're moving that money. And so what this so-called rational market that's very efficient is all about is the emotions of a few thousand New York traders who could get very scared if there's an event like the financial meltdown from real estate bonds that create a lot of emotion and suddenly companies that have nothing to do with that, nothing to do at all with the finance side of the world or bonds or anything, those companies are being sold off at, you know, at half of their value. 
Well, I mean, I take your point. I think it sounds a little simplistic to me to say, it's all emotion. Everyone's acting constantly on emotion. Like, these are people who have massive amounts of research and numbers and data about the companies that they're investing in. And probably the reason the companies that had nothing to do with real estate started having a price go down is because the whole economy was tanking due to the real estate problem. And they knew that. I mean, I don't think that, to go back to your earlier point, these are intelligent people. I don't think they're just screaming and running around in the hallways and then shouting things like, sell everything, you know? Well, you're right. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, okay, I don't know that they were running around screaming. Um, you know, they do throw themselves off buildings occasionally, so you know that the emotion is definitely there. I mean, people were jumping in 1929, right? I know. So, I mean, you got to think, really, if you've spent your whole life being the smartest guy in the room and suddenly your portfolio is going down and you're afraid that you're right well you there's information that you didn't have that you now have and that's terrifying right i mean we started this out saying the most important thing is to know what you don't know and the most difficult thing is to know what you don't know yeah true so these are people who have done all the research and think that they've made a good call and it's holy crap I did not make a good call because here's this new information. Yes. That's terrifying. That's emotional. But it's based on information. It's based on data. It's based on new data coming in. Yes. So. So what, why, why would this not be rational? Right. right. Okay. I guess, I guess maybe I'm saying the emotion seems rational to me. Right. I understand. Um, The emotion seems reasonable anyway to have a motion of fear when there's something to really be afraid of. Right. But right, and, and to be af- confronted with the, the very real realization that you've missed information. Right, that new... And that well, threatens, it wasn't missed, that it threatens just, the rest of okay, your assumptions. So here's the thing. What are these guys afraid of? That's, that's the first thing that we need to understand is if fear is there and, and they're afraid for a reason, what is the thing that they're afraid of? Right, let's say with the meltdown in 2009, why were they selling everything? Why were they doing that? Well, one of the reasons is that a lot of people were taking their money out of the stock market because it started to go down. So just the fact that it's going down caused pension fund managers who have $50 million invested in this mutual fund to just take it out. Oh, I don't want to be there when it goes down. And now we have to ask ourselves, well, why not? I thought we were supposed to ride through these bumps. That's what they tell us. Just keep it in the market, long-term investing, that's the way to go, ride through the bumps, the market always goes up in the long run. So why would really intelligent guys from Wharton and Harvard try to pull their money out of the market as it starts to go down in 2008? Why would they do that? Oh, this is interesting, because they had to get their money back to their investors who were pulling out. They had to give the money back to the investors who were pulling out. So The, and the only why, way to do that is to sell. You have to sell. And if you start to realize that all of the big guys in the market, the California Teachers Pension Fund is pulling the money out because it doesn't want to be in the market when it's going down. This is making the market go down. Absolutely. Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So that drives a lot of fear if you're out of control and your investors are taking their money away. Your well, kid might not go to the best school in New York next year. And let's say your own investors are staying for whatever reason, but the 100 
fund managers next to you have all of their investors pulling out, you know the market's going down because of that. Right. So you have to make decisions based on that, which probably means selling. If you know the market's going down because everyone else is selling. You're selling. Because so that makes sense. Your time horizon is very different than Warren Buffett's and Charlie Munger's. And it's different because you, as a fund manager, can't control your capital. Your capital is scared money. It's now leaving, and you need to be quicker to get the rest of it out of the market than the rest of the guys are, so that you can hold on to this capital so it won't leave, right? Charlie Munger doesn't have to deal with that. Buffett doesn't have to deal with that. I don't deal with that in my own fund. So if you, don't, if you have scared money, which is money that's going to pull out on you based on what the market is doing because of unrelated things to you whatsoever, then you have to be a different kind of investor than, than, than Buffett and Munger. That sounds to me like it's rational, but not efficient. And it go. sounds to me like cool. the value of a company clearly has no relationship to all of these people pulling out of funds. I mean, that's nothing to do with a given company down the road. Chipotle Grill, 2008, going gangbusters. Earnings better every year. And with the benefit of hindsight, earnings better in 2009, better in 2010, better. This whole meltdown had nothing to do with Chipotle Grill, okay? They're selling burritos. And in fact, the worse the economy got, the more burritos they sold which would be a rational assumption, right? People are gonna stop going to Olive Garden and they're gonna start going to Chipotle, right? That would make sense if you're rational. And on hindsight, that's what they did. So why would people panic out of Chipotle Grill at the same time they're bailing out of Bank of America? You know, why? those two things are complete. Chipotle had nothing to do with this meltdown in the financial services industry. But what was happening is people were getting afraid of the stock market as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so they were pulling the money out of the whole market. So companies that had no problems going on whatsoever had this cash flow going off into the future that you could estimate pretty accurately what the current value is. Those companies got lower and lower price. You don't think that that's because investors started thinking people are going to stop buying overpriced burritos? No. And start going to Taco Bell for underpriced burritos. Well, possibly. But Taco Bell was going down, too. Oh, it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way out. Everything was tanking. And so y you can see that immediately the, the, there's this idea that the old market is efficient and price is value and price is equal to value. Suddenly gets a little weird when you've got everything going down for something that's not an everything problem. Right? Unless the whole world's going to stop. Is the value of a company different than the price of a company? That's a huge question. So let me answer this by saying that according to the University of Chicago, Richard Fama, um, according to Burton Malkiel at Princeton, according to basically most of the academic community in the Ivy League in the 1960s and 70s, the answer is the value of a business is its price. According to Warren Buffett, is its price on the public market? On the public market, that's its, its price is value. That's critical to understanding the way the stock market works. Is that most of the people who invest your money in the stock market believe that price is value because they've been taught that as the paradigm of the way the market works for the last forty years. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger say something very different. They say value price is what you paid. That's all price is. Price is what you paid. 
values what you got. So if you went out and you paid $150,000 for your car, you just bought a new car, <laughs> <laughs> what'd you pay? Oh gosh, I don't know, some, some excellent amount that was less than they wanted me to, was I don't it, know. Was it less than sticker? Um, I actually don't know, to be honest. Well, I hope it was. You helped me with that one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was. So less than sticker. So what if what if we just didn't know there was a sticker out there, right? What if we just paid $150,000 for the car? We still just got the same car. We didn't get a better car because we paid $150,000 instead of $50,000. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you could pay $150,000 for a Picasso or $50,000 for Picasso, but if you pay $150,000 for a car that's only worth fifty. You've made a big mistake, okay? So when now that's maybe even debatable on a car, but when you come to a business and a business produces cash flow, there's a pretty narrow value associated with the future value, uh, the future range of cash flow that you're going to get. You you wouldn't be stupid and pay a million dollars for a company that's going to give you just ten dollars a year in cash flow, let's say, or let's go the other way. You wouldn't sell a company for a million dollars that gives you a million dollars in cash flow every year. Nobody would do that, right? Not if we see that the cash flow is going on year after year after year after year after year forever, a million dollars a year. Nobody would sell that for a million dollars. They're going to sell it for five million or eight million or ten million. They're going to try to get more for it. So there's a range of real world value. And it turns out that in private businesses, it turns out to be about seven, eight times the, the cash flow of the company is a really pretty good deal. In public companies, it can be 13, 15, 15 times the cash flow of the company is a reasonable deal in a public company. And so we know that from people buying companies and selling companies for hundreds of years, we're not willing to pay an infinite amount, as Charlie says, an infinite amount of money for the cash flow of this business. It's just not worth an infinite amount. Yeah, so what we need to know is what multiple we should be paying. Exactly. And maybe we should move on to that in our next episode. Okay. That sounds like a big topic to me. Okay, it is a big topic, and this whole concept is a really intense topic, and I think we got to spend some more time on it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.